Well, let's go to Amos. Let's go to Amos. Amos, I think at three. Just want a launching point for our discussion, our continued discussion of the problem of evil. All right, Amos chapter 3, and I'm going to look up another one because I've, I've meant to do so before. Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den? If he have taken nothing, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord had not done it? Now go to Isaiah 45. The trial of the false gods starts in Isaiah 40, goes on through chapter 48, where the demarcation line between the God of the Scriptures and all the false idols is laid before us. Isaiah 45, verse 7. God speaking, of course, he goes back to verse 5, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, thou, that they may know from the rising of the sun, from the west, and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things things okay so uh some hard sayings right says here i create evil said in uh amos he says can there of course the answer is the answer is meant to be a negation and all those questions two cannot walk together except they be agreed and so on can there be evil in the city and the lord has not done it well, that seems to uh, pose problems for us. Let's try to answer them. All right, let's remind ourselves where we are. We're going through systematic theology, and we introduced ourselves to the famous atheist argument, and I gave the, I gave the uh, formula of John Stuart Mill. Uh, John Stuart Mill was a utilitarian philosopher from uh, really a little bit after our founders. Uh, and what was the problem of evil? The problem of evil was, one, well now I'm going to have to, I want to get the wording that was used by Mill. One, if God is omnipotent, 
You're still going to find this argument online all the time. Uh, if God is omnipotent, um, I want to get the exact wording, He is able to prevent evil. And I cannot not capitalize the pronouns. He is able to prevent evil. So far, we're in agreement with Mr. Mill. If God is good, or sometimes the word is omnibenevolent, if God is good, He wants to prevent evil. Then his third premise, Mr. Mills, was evil exists. And therefore, he says, God is either not omnipotent or not good. And therefore, they argue that the God of the Scriptures does not exist. Now, we talked about the problems with this argument. The problem with this argument is evident. It's not a good logical argument at all, right? I mean, it logically fails because is there more about God that we know than that He's revealed other than Him being omnipotent and all good? For instance... He's all wise. Why was that left out of the argument? The argument presents a false dilemma. It logically falls apart once you see that it presents a false dilemma. So logically, there's no, we have nothing to fear from this argument because they are not presenting everything that is true about God. They're only cherry-picking what they want to present about God in order to get the conclusion they already desired to get to, that God does not exist. So it's not a good logical argument. Can an all-wise God have good reasons for allowing evil to occur? Just like the doctor who has to reset a bone <laughs> has good reasons to break it <laughs> again and cause pain and cause suffering, or a doctor uh, has good reason to use a scalpel or something to that. Uh, an all-wise God may have very, very good reason, and we trust does have very good reasons for all the evil that is occurring. So it's not a good logical argument, but it's still an argument that we hear and still an argument even as we look at kind of is intimidating, right? It intimidates us a little. It intimidates us because what we talked about a couple weeks ago, it hits us right here in our emotions. I don't like to see a dog suffer. I don't like to see evil happen. Uh, and I always remember the famous, or I don't know how famous they are, but the lines from, from C.S. Lewis's book uh, on the problem of pain, which is one, one book that I would always recommend of his, um, where he, he is waxing eloquent on all the reasons that God may have for allowing evil in the world and so on and so forth. And he gets to the end of the chapter and he says, I would talk more about the problem of evil 
but I have a toothache. So, so he ended the chapter right there. And, and just, those, just those little things is able to kind of stop, it, it stops our reasoning process when we're actually in the midst of suffering, when we're actually in the midst of actually experiencing evil. Um, and so it's an emotional issue. And that's why it resonates. It, it, it resonates because when people talk, when, when people put forth this argument, they are touching the emotional core of the person they're talking to. And that's what makes it feel down, down, uh, uh, daunting <laughs> is the word. But daunting, I couldn't come up with the right, <laughs> with the right inflection for it. Um, so the, when we're suffering... The, this offers no comfort to anyone that's in suffering. It just offers rebellion against this idea of God. Because what is the very first thing that we ask when we're suffering? What's the first thing we say? Why? Why is this happening? What's this argument tell us? This argument gives nobody any answers, does it? but we want to know why. Why? Because in the core of our being, we know there is a reason. There has to be a reason. It's a cruel joke to tell someone there is no reason, and that's what this argument eventually leads to on an emotional level. There is no reason. We're just in chaos and experiencing chaos. And then you end with, with, the, uh, with the nihilism of, of people like John Paul Sartre and others. Uh, this offers no hope to anybody. We have better answers because we have a God that is omnipotent, a God that is good, a God that is all-knowing, a God that is love, and all those things. So we have greater answers, but, but answering the problem why is difficult. And I'm just re- rehearsing what we went over two weeks ago. Answering the problem why is difficult. We went back over the book of Job, for instance. Um, we, the readers knew why, but did Job? No, he didn't. Did Job ever get answers in the book? Even when God spoke, did God tell him, well, this is exactly why? No, God gave him a hundred-some questions, all meant to zero in on the greatness of God. And we have to approach this from the matter of faith and not from the matter of 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 being able to rationally say, well, this is exactly why. Why? Because what we said about providence uh, maybe a month or so ago. Providence is something that's like Hebrew. Uh, it's read backwards. Uh, you, know, you know after the fact, oh, wow, God really did bring us through this for a purpose. But we don't know it in the end. We're, we're, we as Christians, when we're facing people who are honestly struggling with with suffering and evil that is happening around them, we rarely, if ever, are able to answer that why question. Um, Job's friends tried to answer it, (laughs) and they sinned doing it. And uh, the best thing that Job's friends did is just sit down and not say a word for seven days because the moment they opened their mouth... And started to tell Job, this is exactly why this is happening to you. 
um, they offered no comfort and, and ultimately a sin against their friend and sin against the Lord. Um, so that's the problem of evil. We, we are left trying to answer the emotional questions to the people that are around us. And last week, we talked about the nature of evil. The nature of evil. Uh, and we wanted to simplify this the best we could, and I don't have an eraser anywhere. Is there an eraser? I'll just leave it there. You all have to read the problem of evil over and over. <laughs> yeah, I don't even see tissue. Okay, tissue. So we talked about, we talked about uh, the nature of evil. And the nature of evil, this is difficult. The nature of evil, many people try to give answers to. And we talked about a couple of the biggest answers. And then we talked about what is evil biblically. We didn't answer all the questions that we have about the nature of about where evil comes from. But uh, one idea was, is evil is an illusion. How do you spell illusion? Is it two L's? All right. I-A-N or I-O-N? Okay. Evil's an I don't know why my mind's not working. So evil is an illusion. Uh, I don't know if you uh, have ever had to the opportunity to talk to someone, someone who is involved in Christian science. All right, Mary Baker, Baker Eady, uh, has her cult that she started, Christian Science, was neither Christian nor a science. What do they believe about the nature of evil? Well, evil is just an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't exist. And if you change the way you think about things, uh, evil will disappear out of your life. A lot of, a lot of new ageism, a lot of power of positive thinking kind of stuff, uh, uh, and they therefore eschew any use of doctors and all, all kinds of stuff because evil is not real. It's a matter of the mind. It's an illusion. But that doesn't escape the problem. If evil is an illusion, it's a very, very convincing one. <laughs> and uh, if, if evil is an illusion... It's still real to us, those of us who are having an illusion, even if you can't, uh, even if you can't, uh, I forgot where I was going with that sentence, but it, it, it's a very real illusion and it doesn't escape the problem if, because evil still has a reality, we're still experiencing it, and saying it's not real is just, is just, uh, is just bypassing the, or kicking the can down the road for someone else. Of course, you get into Buddhism, Hinduism, things like that. Uh, that's kind of central to their idea, their understanding of evil, that it's all illusory. And if you, uh, like in Buddhism, if you just have the right, you go through the eightfold path of right thinking and right exercise and right this, that you can overcome the evil that you uh, believe is real. Uh, so it's an illusion. And here's one from the Christians, uh, more Christian circles, and one that I've actually used, unfortunately. I'm going to have to go correct that in anything I've ever wrote. <laughs> Evil is non-being. This gets into uh, Aristotelian, uh, Thomistic philosophy about God being the perfect good, all other things ha having contingent existence and being less perfect, and, what is, and, and tending towards non-being. In other words... Um, 
good is ultimate and, and anything that departs from the good has non-being. I'm not getting into the metaphysics because it's, it's uh, weird, <laughs> but that's uh, kind of Thomistic, and I've actually held that. But what is, what is it biblically? When we're talking about evil, it is a curse. Going back to Genesis. Where does all natural evil come from that we experience? We live in a cursed world, on a cursed earth. And there is earthquakes, and there is famines, and there is uh, thorns and briars and sorrows and bringing forth children and, and, and all these things. We have an enemy that is, that is given to us in the curse. Because you have done this, he said to the serpent, cursed are you and upon your belly you will go and dust you will shall eat and and I will put enmity between you and the woman and so on there where where does all natural evil come from that we experience in this world it comes from a real curse that was put upon this world that's that's the idea we're reading when we're reading Amos so when we're reading um when we're reading Isaiah 45 what is he saying? I curse the world. Uh, we live in a cursed world. Where does all moral evil come from? Well, by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Uh, we're, all, we're, we're born sinners. We're born with an inclination towards sin. We are born with an inclination away from God. Uh, all those truths that are true uh, in Romans chapter 3. Uh, there is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, uh, they're all together gone out of the way. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks God. They, they are all together become filthy. All these things is the reality around us. Now, it doesn't answer the question of the first sin and what caused the first sin to happen, but as far as the evil that you and I experience, we... Experience it because we are living in a cursed earth among a cursed people with no hope outside of Christ. And that is evil. That is the evil we're talking about. Now, granted, we still have to answer the questions of why did Adam sin? Why did Satan fall? Things of that question. But that's a one-time event in history. But as far as the evil that we experience, it has a reality. It's not illusory. It's not tending towards non-being. It's not something unreal. It is something real. And it has a reality to us based upon the world that we live in. Uh, we don't, it, this is not a best of all possible worlds. This is, this is a world that is cursed by sin. And that is what we said about the nature of evil. Now let's uh, get on, pick up from there. There's another set of arguments that we have to entertain here about, as we try to answer the problem of evil, we, we now know a little bit more about what we're trying to answer. That evil is a real thing. Uh... And how about, uh, John Frame goes on to talk about good things about evil. Are there good things about evil? 
That sounds counterintuitive, right? All right, so this is an approach to the argument that, uh, that we, it's just good for us to kind of have in our arsenal as we want to talk to people. Uh, some of these are good, good ways of approaching. Some of these are not as good. Um, but the claim that the presence of evil in this world, or at least the possibility of evil in this world, is for the world's good. Uh, when, when, we, when we have a broader perspective, when we're able, like for instance, in the book of Job, we're able to step up back from the book of Job and we're able to look at the book of Job as a whole and we're, gonna, and we're able to get lessons from it. We're able to conclude what James concluded about it. Behold how, how long-suffering, how, 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 how good God is in, in, uh, in rewarding the patience of Job. Uh, and we've seen how great God is in that. So it has this greater purpose when you receive, when we see things through a greater perspective. Or as I said, with the eyes of providence, reading backwards, we're able to see some what God has done. So it doesn't seem impossible to imagine that a good God permits and allows evil and even brings evil for greater purposes. And this is called... The greater good defense. And we've already made some mention of this. Greater good defense. As we're trying to give an apologetic for this. The greater good defense uh, is often something that we're going to employ. Like I said, the doctor that re-breaks a bone to set it correctly is doing a greater good. Uh, and, and actually alleviating a lot of evil and a lot of pain that could come from that. So the greater good defense. Uh, so some argue, and I'm just uh, kind of verbatim taking this from uh, John Frame, uh, the possibility of evil is necessary in an orderly world. I don't think this is a great way to approach this, um, but just the idea that an orderly world... Um, in this view, the universe governed predictably by natural law uh, that is more impersonal, like the laws of gravity or something to that effect, um, is, allows for evil to occur and places limits on activity. For instance, um, if someone jumps from a cliff and he would never be hurt by jumping from a cliff or something to that effect... Uh, uh, like the law of gravity doesn't place limits and create the ability of someone suffering for trying to defy that law. Uh, so, the, so this argument is, is if we live in an orderly, predictable universe, uh, we must be willing to accept that certain amounts of pain and certain amounts of suffering um, may occur in an orderly universe. Now the problem with this is, is there is a best of all possible worlds yet to come. And it will be orderly, just as orderly as this world. And it says, God shall wipe away all tears. And uh, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain. So if we're going to defend the reality of that world, we cannot just take, well, well, this is the natural law that allows for allows for. Uh, evil and suffering to exist. I don't think that's a good way to approach it. 
Um, others argued that there is a soul-making, so a soul-making aspect. For instance, um, one man argues we need some hard knocks in order to mature and gain moral fiber. Uh, for instance, my, my, uh, my little girl uh, needs to stand, she needs to fall, she needs to do these things in order to learn how to walk uprightly and walk securely and be able to eventually run and do these things. It takes many scrapes, many falls, many things that have to happen in order to bring us to a maturity. Um, and a common form of this uh, would be arguments kind of like that. Um, people... You always inevitably on social media get someone says, I'm from the school of hard knocks. That's where I learned everything from. Um, I, the, 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 as far as soul-making theodicy, the fact that Adam's problem, I, Adam was created good. He wasn't created morally immature. And the entrance of sin in the world had nothing to do with the need for him to develop character or anything of that nature. It was a decision to sin. Uh, But that doesn't mean there's not a true kind of soul-making that happens. For instance, um, uh, we we could argue that um, virtues are are exhibited in a world where there is suffering and sin. For instance... What does terms like compassion, patience, courage, justice mean in a world that doesn't have these hard knocks, that doesn't have the evils that are present? Um, All the great stories have one instance in them. You have a, a protagonist who faces what's called a conflict and overcomes that conflict. That's that soul-making idea. So we live in a world that we're, we live in a world right now, even as evil as this world is, where there can be heroes, where there can be stories of great courage, where there can be stories of great love that is given towards us. So there is a soul-making aspect, uh, and we we hear these stories all the time, and we're grateful for these things, where where uh, altruism. This giving of oneself can happen for the sake of others. Um, This is a trying world, a part of the probationary kind of existence that we have where who we are is is realized as we're living in a world where, well, frankly, everybody, us and everyone else around us is getting knocked around. And uh, there is a soul-making aspect. What did Jesus say? Uh, Greater love has no man than this, and a man lays down his life for his friends. Or 1 John chapter 3.16, Christ gave himself for us, and we ought also to give ourselves for one another. Uh, this, these virtues uh, can best be realized in the world that you and I are now living in, as cursed as this world is. I better hurry up. I, I took a long time introducing... 
Uh, we can also think of other positives of evil. For instance, as we go through the Scriptures, uh, God uses evil. Not saying God is, is morally, uh, morally uh, culpable for evil, but God uses evil for good things. For instance, we've already talked about this repeatedly with, when we were talking about providence. What did Joseph say when his brothers came to him? You meant it for evil. Did they do evil? Did evil happen to Joseph? Yeah, he got beat up, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. All these things by his brothers. They did evil to Joseph. And God intended that evil to do what? Good. And it did. Stepping back from it, we see the story as a whole, and almost in this aorist idea of, uh, uh, or aspect where we see this snapshot of the entire thing and we say, God did something great. And we saw that with the cross. You with wicked hands took and destroyed, is what Peter said. <laughs> but God's determinate for counsel determined Christ to be set up as Lord and Savior through it. So God uses evil, and God uses, e God uses evil in our lives. For instance, God uses evil to test His servants, Job 1, right? Job was just, and Job was tested. And he came forth as gold, by the way. That's what Peter says. The fiery trial which is to try you is working a far greater eternal weight. And I think I'm mixing two verses up there, but you know what I mean. Um, he uses evil to discipline. Hebrews 12, right? To preserve lives, as we saw with Joseph. To teach patience and perseverance. James chapter 1. Uh, um, I wanted to quote it, and now I can't. Uh, he, James chapter 1, the very first few verses where he says, um, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this is the trying of your faith works patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So teaching patience, teaching, teaching endurance, a redirecting attention. Psalm 37, for instance, uh, has this idea of direct, you're, you're envious of the wicked and and the attention is drawn back to what you have in the Lord through suffering to enable them to comfort others. I can often tell people with, with, with exactness what the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, that these things happen to you that you might comfort others who are in the same affliction. God has a reason. I, I, we've seen it in our own lives. We've gone through hard times so we can help others that go through similar things in, the, in those things. Um, uh, I, I know people who have, who have uh, suffered through cancer treatments and, and ultimately became victorious, were able to sit and hold hands of others who were going through those same cancer treatments and be an immense amount of comfort and help to them. God has a reason for you going through what you're going through. Uh, to enable you to be a witness. We saw that in Acts, right? 
where they were beaten. And they rejoiced because they were able to give a witness for the Lord. And, and what did, I think Tertullian said, that the, that the blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church, the seed of the churches, where for the first 300 years, Christianity was persecuted and flourished because of it. Literally toppled an entire uh, kingdom by their witness, well, the witness they gave as they were giving their lives. God had a reason. God has a reason, that same reason right now. People are getting saved in parts of the world where they're seeing others live for Christ and even die for Christ. And they're seeing the beauty of the Lord through it. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters that are going through that, but they are giving a great witness. So, so a witness of the truth. To give greater joy when suffering is replaced by glory. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 13, and I don't remember exactly the wording of the text, but First Peter, I'll get there eventually. It's, I should put the thing down. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Think also of the wording of Romans chapter 8. For I am, where he says, I am persuaded. Well, no, I'm getting it wrong. Uh, that's 7. Where he says, for I reckon, verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the greater glory of heaven will be even more glorious seen behind the back backdrop of suffering. There's a reason why when you go to buy a diamond uh, to marry a girl or whatever you want to do, and what do they do? They bring the diamond and they put it out, put it in front of a black velvet. Why? Because that accentuates the glory of the diamond, is the blackness and darkened canvas behind it. Uh, that's part of what Paul was arguing there, uh, and uh, Peter was arguing as well. And Paul argued in another place, for the light affliction is but for a moment, but it works for us an exceeding greater weight, um, far, far more exceeding greater weight of glory. Um, uh, to judge both the wicked and uh, to to both judge the wicked, both in history, like in Deuteronomy twenty eight, where he talks about judging the wicked nation, or in life to come, as in Matthew twenty five, where the curse is brought down upon the wicked, to bring a reward to the righteous, Matthew chapter five, um, Paul or uh, our Lord says. Uh, Blessed is he who is persecuted for my name's sake. And why I cannot recall the scripture right ahead today. You are just making me nervous. That's what it is. So. Uh, he says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So, just simply, evil happens often 
that the works of God might be displayed. And we were praying this the other day about uh, that God might be known. And God does these things through the, back, the black backdrop of an evil and cursed world and evil things that occur. The thrust of all these arguments, says Frame, is that although evil is deplored, to be deplored in and of itself, there are some aspects of it in which it makes the world a general better place. Uh, generally speaking, there is a greater good. Not that this is the best of all possible worlds, as some have tried to argue, such as um, so some philosophers have tried to argue this is not the best of all possible worlds. This is God working through this world to bring something greater in the end. Or as we just talked about, um, or as we just, uh, he'll wipe away all tears one day. He'll take away all pain and all those things. Uh, real quickly, uh, Frame had some points here that were worth uh, just going through. He says, it's important for us to remember as we entertain this uh, greater good defense that we see the greater good theistically, that ultimately God is being glorified through this. And everything that has happened is ultimately happening for His glory. For those who love, who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, as it says in Romans 8, 28. So we see theistically that it is for the glory of God and for the glory of all who love God. We also have to see God as the standard uh, that governs our concept of goodness. We cannot allow this argument to kind of drift into some ideas of... of um, of things, of some kind of impersonal natural law, or so, or something to that effect, that is driving this. We live in a more, we live in a moral context, and God is the good, God is the standard of goodness, and all things. And there can be no talk of good and evil at all. What's the problem with the? What's the problem with uh, one of the unspoken problems with the problem of evil that John Stuart Mill uh, put forward that we we're looking at this morning is how do they even know what good and evil is? when they're already trying to disprove the one source of, of that which is good. Um, so the Christian may turn the tables on the unbeliever at any point in time uh, because if they're arguing that there is no God, then the problem of evil is meaningless. Uh, they, have to, they have to account for both the problem of good and evil. Uh, so... He also states here, I think this is a good point, if we are to rightly evaluate God's actions, we have to evaluate them over the whole of human history. If you were to take a moving camera picture of someone in suffering, and all you see is that suffering in and of itself, and you don't see the beginning and you don't see the end, you can't really give an accounting of it. Again, the book of Job gives a full accounting of all that happened to Job. And... God's goodness at the end. And if we were to look at it through the whole of human history, we would have a different perspective as opposed to just watching the newsreel of a tsunami somewhere or something to that effect. Uh, there is a broader picture than just the moment. And when we're crying out why or the people around us are crying out why is this happening, we can say, I don't know, 
right now why it's happening. I don't. But that's, that's another point that he brings out, and I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead. When we're looking at this, we rightly can say that we look at it through the eyes of faith. God, the God that you and I know, the God of the Scriptures, that good, omnipotent, loving God has a reason. And we can have faith that He does. That that why is not just an empty thing that's being yelled into a chasm and bouncing off walls and going nowhere. But it's a why that has a real answer at the other side of it. Because there is a God that is, again, Romans 8, 28, working all things for good. And that's, that's something we have. We walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, and too often we allow the discussion of the problem of evil to just be that rolling camera. Well, look at this that's happening, and look at that that's happening. And, and how can the Christian even answer this when in reality you, can, you evaluate this thing by faith? And knowing that there is a broader perspective, a perspective that God has. Uh, one person said, uh, there would be no problem of evil if evil was solved within five seconds. <laughs> right? If evil happens and then evil is, evil is brought to its conclusion and there is no more evil, uh, then there would be no problem of evil. But a day with the Lord is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We're, he's, he is not working things according to human perceptions. Like we said before, what is the Christian answer to the problem of evil? Well, it's this. God has spoken, and he's revealed both the beginning and the end. And he has given us an eternal perspective by which we can see all things. And see how it relate, how these things and these things relate to the greater picture. And I think I just need to stop right there. So that's just some things about the greater good defense. These are things that are good for us to have. But now, next week, we're going to have to deal with a bigger question. Adam sinned. He sinned freely. The devil sinned. He sinned freely. Uh, that have been in history. Did God have to allow that to happen? What, is, what, 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 what do we say when that argument is brought forward? Okay, fine, we live in a cursed world, filled with cursed people, but, uh, but we, we still need to answer the problem uh, and the argument of God's agency. Why did God allow man to fall? Why did God allow Satan to fall? And that is usually the retort, uh, the unbelieving retort that is brought before us. And we'll try to tackle that next week. Any questions, complaints, or grievances? Or did I put you all to sleep with? <laughs> all right. All right. Well, if there's no grievances, we shall go forward. We got about 15 minutes before the next hour. <laughs>